episode 194 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and the podcast welcomes back Mariah Fredericks, whose Death of an American Beauty was recently published by Minotaur Books. Thank you so much for taking time and talking with Speaking of Mysteries, Mariah. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. I love Speaking of Mysteries. Well, we love, to, we love that you love Speaking of Mysteries, so thank you. <laughs> There's no, I've been asking um, the writers that I've been speaking to over the last uh, month about this, and and I have to say, it's a challenging time to launch a book, Um, you know, with the stay-at-home orders, and I just have to ask, what are you doing to publicize uh, your book? It's It's a challenge to get the attention of readers at the best of times. And not being able to make the rounds of signings and and going to uh, some of the mystery conventions that are taking place uh, only compounds that. So what are you doing? What is Mariah Fredericks doing? Well, I mean, Mariah Fredericks has been really very fortunate in that I think with, for those of us who have books coming out in March and April, people have been very sensitive to uh, the fact that it's a difficult climate to launch a book. And people have been amazingly generous about offering a platform, you know, like you. Um, I spoke with Sujata Massey on Friday. Um, I had a conversation with uh, Jess Montgomery, who, who wrote The Widows, um, last week. Um, so people have been very kind, and I think, you know, the mystery community is a terrific group. Um, people are very generous and supportive, and they're doing more at the bars online, um, and they're trying to get uh, bookstores supported through bookshop.org. So, but basically, it's all been virtual. Um, you know, I've certainly had the time to, I've, I've gotten a lot of um, letters from readers, and I've been able to chat with them at length. Um, so that's been great. You know, I, I feel weirdly lucky if this was going to happen, that it happened at the beginning of the outbreak. I'm, I'm concerned that the energy will dwindle um, in the coming months if we're all in the same situation. On the on the other hand, though, uh, people are doing an, a lot of reading, um, yes. may, maybe more than otherwise. I'm... Well, let, let's talk about the book. Uh, Death of an American Beauty is your third book featuring your, mm-hmm. third, your third published book featuring Jane Prescott. And she's a lady's maid in New York City in the second decade of the 20th century. Uh, and I've been able, I've had the great good fortune to be able to talk to you about all three of them. And the stories I feel have changed. Um, but what hasn't is the era's depressingly relentless assaults against women, physical, economical, mm-hmm. and psychological. So even though Jane is actually taking a vacation from her duties as a lady's maid in this particular installment, uh, evidence of the continuing war on women is everywhere in your book. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Um, and it, it sort of evolved in an interesting way. This was going to be uh, the first hook for the, the first sort of like, oh, that would be interesting moment that I had for 1913 was the Armory show. Um, and I was aware of Forrest um, Foster Jenkins and the phenomenon of society women throwing 
cultural dialogue. You know, I thought, oh my God, I have to get the Ben Schweitz and the Tylers involved with that. So originally, the focus of the book was going to be very much culture. Um, but when I started looking at the Cubists, which who were a huge part of the Armory Art Show, um, and shocked the nation, and tried to figure out why those images were so shocking, I could see to the 1913 eyes that they would feel fairly violent in their approach to the female form and face. So even though I didn't intend to start to continue on with that theme in such a strong way, it just that's where the book went. And, you know, I, in our email exchanges, I mentioned that I thought that, that this uh, book was a bit more of an insight into Jane, and now I'll be able to ask mm -hmm. you the questions. Um, you know, I thought uh, Death of an American Beauty showed us more of who Jane is, sort of beyond her work, mm -hmm. that she, not only is she she's a keen observer of the human condition as well as the detective. And then, as you, as you just mentioned, she attends this revolutionary show of modern art at the Armory, uh, that's introducing the Cubist uh, movement and the Fauve movement to America, as it were. And she also starts, uh, she dances, uh, which is something we didn't mm -hmm. know about Jane before, and she dances to ragtime music. So I, I think it's important that she's in this place, this revolutionary place, and she is an active participant in it. That's what I meant. Yes. Yeah, I I did want to, the reason I took Jane on vacation was that in the first two books, I was very aware that, you know, I had focused on the, the, the gilded part of her life, sort of the upstairs part, and I wanted to explore the Lower East Side and the world that she grew up in um, and her uncle, who's this, you know, extremely progressive but difficult uh, minister uh, who does uh, outreach on the Lower East Side with women who are leaving the world's oldest profession. Um, so, yeah, Jane, even though I don't, you know, she's much less revolutionary than her best friend Anna, actual labor activist and anarchist, she does discover a little bit of her own uh, rebellious, uh, progressive side uh, in this book. And, and you know, like the time, this story is full of the sort of the cross currents of the old ways, sort of the, the Victorian ways, uh, butting up against the more modern progressive ways. And, right. uh, you know, this, this is, as you mentioned, this is something that's, that's going on in, in, the, in Jane's life and in the city, and in the country, and in the world. I mean, it was, it, you know, we tend to think of this time as a little bit, uh, you know, Gilded Age-esque, and it, it's cracking. The guild is flaking off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you think of the 20s as the great youth revolution uh, in culture, but you are starting to see uh, sort of the first tremors of that, even as early as 1913 in culture. Um, you know, Irene, Irene Castle has already bobbed her hair. She's already out there dancing and moving in different 
ways. Um, so, and of course, we're we're only uh, four years uh, from the Russian Revolution, which just really shocks the world. But one of the things, the one of the other things that struck me is, as we mentioned, Jane is dancing, and and she's been introduced to ragtime music, which is uh, evolving. Uh, that we should mention also has racial overtones. Right. And uh, New York City in 1913, just like now, was a multiracial, multi-ethnic city. Anna is, mm -hmm. is Italian-American. Uh, Jane is of Scottish descent. So I thought that that was interesting, that Jane uh, is maybe because of her upbringing with her uncle, I her uncle did take in women of color uh, into his uh, sanctuary. Mm -hmm. So perhaps her upbringing had more to do with it than we might otherwise have thought in the first two books. Right, right. Well, it's also, it's, you know, her uncle, in a weird way, I mean, he doesn't do outreach specifically. It's just that a woman, the um, in the book, um, just to, to give an idea of the plot, um, Jane's next stop after the Armory show is her uncle's refuge, where they're having the annual dance, uh, where the women are allowed to sort of kick up their heels and, uh, you know, let loose for a night. Um, and Jane's uncle always leaves the refuge uh, at, on that night, because it's not really his scene. And unfortunately, one of the women is found brutally murdered, and Jane's uncle falls under suspicion. And she, in trying to clear him, she has to find a woman who came to the refuge uh, many years ago who was probably attacked by the same man. And that woman was one of the first of um, African-American women to migrate from the South up to New York. Um, and uh, so that's because 1913 is also the 50th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so I thought that this was a time given that ragtime was an African-American musical form, you know, with Scott Joplin, that this was a time to see where, where was the country on this <laughs> issue uh, 50 years later, um, and then as now, uh, pretty, pretty mixed. But at the same time, you know, the, the, this, this person is, is disfiguring women. He has disfigured women, this uh, mm -hmm. murderer. And we have to point out that then women were much like they are now are, were valued by their even more so by their physical appearance, and there's right. still the commoditization of women and their looks. And I thought the way you depicted it, uh, with this sort of magnificent department store sponsorship of an annual beauty pageant, uh, right. was was creepy in a way. I can't describe, so I'm going to let you do it because it's your it is your universe. Um, well, the 
The department store is Rutherford's, uh, which is something I made up. And Louise uh, has gotten herself involved in this pageant to celebrate the emancipation. Um, and the pageant um, is going to be part of this annual beauty contest um, where Rutherford finds sort of a, a lower middle class girl and elevates her as, you know, the ideal American beauty. This is around the time that, I mean, you do, I believe, have the Miss Subway contest and Photo Play Magazine has just come into being. And the concept of sort of mass production of a concept of what American women ought to look like, where you certainly had that earlier with, um, you know, Evelyn Nesbitt. Um, but this, this con the idea of a department store where, on the one hand, women can be free. It's, a, it's a, a place where they can go and have some liberty and some economic power. Uh, but, of course, you can only have that liberty if you have money to spend. And if you submit to an idea of feminine beauty as dictated uh, by the tastemakers of the time. Um, and I think I was sort of weirdly influenced. Do you remember that movie, The Phantom Thread? With yes. Daniel Day yes. There's something so seductive. He plays, you know, a, a brilliant fashion designer about putting yourself... Um, in the hands of somebody like that, but it's also very creepy and coercive and domineering. Um, and as a fashion challenged person, I've always had um, a slightly ambivalent feeling about high fashion. Now, on the one hand, Jane falls under the spell of Rutherford's and sort of the infinite possibilities that it seems to present to women. You know, what would I be if I could just spend and spend and spend? When she realizes, well, I, I can't spend and spend and spend, and that's not the deepest way for me to understand my own growth and progress in the world. But it is very seductive. But you mentioned the <clears throat> phantom thread and that sort of idea of Svengali-esque. And, of course, Jane is in this world because she's a lady's maid, and she's the lady's right. maid to somebody who is a little sort of uh, a fashion naif, I guess we could call her. She's right. obviously getting better, but Jane has to sort of make sure she wears colors that make her complexion look, you know, robust and uh, or ladylike. And and Jane, I think I think something that's that's important to remember is that fashion is is an industry and it's a, it's still a billion dollar multi-billion dollar mm -hmm. interest industry, uh, in the world. And, and it was growing in, in the second decade of the, of the 20th century. There was a little bit more disposable income. There was more, uh, mass production of, uh, garments and mm -hmm. it w there was an ability for the sort of a the beginning of this aspirational thing, and so I think that's one of the interesting dichotomies about Jane is that she's a, she's serious, but she's also uh, you know interested in art and fashion and music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wanted to draw a contrast 
between people who style the the woman that she eventually does find who has had the encounter with the killer um one of her great gifts in life is to create these beautiful hats you know she has you know this tremendous creative drive um and you know that she creates these hats out of love and skill and that making somebody beautiful can be a very affirmational act. It doesn't have to be coercive. Yeah, so I wanted Jane. Jane enjoys all sorts of things. She enjoys dancing. She enjoys uh, uh, making out with a boy. <laughs> um, she, she has a lot of fun in this book in some ways. Well, you you mentioned the woman, uh, the the woman who had been at her uncle's shelter, who had then gone on the woman of color. So she'd gone to Harlem, and, and she was the sort of the queen of these magnificent hats. And that may also made me think mm -hmm. that it's 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 still the case, but especially then impossible for a woman to really transcend her past. Uh, and mm -hmm. in 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 that world, in Jane Prescott's world, a do-over for a woman was about as likely as a unicorn galloping down Fifth Avenue. It was it was a, <laughs> it was a Herculean task, um, and uh, you know something that uh, didn't didn't really happen because people wouldn't allow it to happen. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, hence, hence various migrations all around the city, all around the country. You had to really, you had to escape. If, if there was, you know, in any way something untoward about your past, you had to uh, go to great lengths to get beyond it. Um, and when Jane does finally find her and say, you know, look, will you come and talk to the police and tell the man that, the per tell them that the person who attacked you was not my uncle. She was like, um, no, because there's only one reason I would have known your uncle, and I can't risk my reputation in the community. And Jane realizes that's a very valid point of view. And then, as Jane is looking for this really heinous killer who disfigures mm -hmm. women's faces, which is really quite gruesome, um, there's there's no shortage of sinister characters, and among the most sinister characters are the do-gooders that uh, <clears throat> congregate outside of her uncle's uh, refuge, who are insinuating that uh, these women have not left the world's oldest profession, and that that the refuge is merely a, a you know an, another. Another brothel, brothel pretending to be a uh, a, a refuge, and and I found yeah. some of the characters she encountered there just horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which one was the worst? Oh, the you? son, it... the son of the I can't I I don't have the book in front of me. Orville, yes, Orville Pickett. I mean, you know, just this this deeply corrupt and creepy and sanctimonious, just uh, humans were humans. They've always been humans. So there was no shortage of hypocrisy then uh, as there is now. So, Yeah. 
Well, I wanted to, Orville, Orville is the son of uh, Clementine Pickett, who was sort of the, the head reformer um, and sort of, you know, incredibly charismatic and in, in her way, intelligent, forceful woman who's able to rally various threads of discontent in the neighborhood uh, against the refuge. And once the women start being killed in a sense of panic and fear um, and anger goes through the neighborhood, she's able to capitalize on that um, and draw more and more people to her side. Um, and, you know, it was, it was interesting because I didn't want to make her sort of a, a one-dimensional, you know, religious whack job that you could just go, Ugh, you know, those people. Um, I wanted her to have some kind of uh, force and power. Um, you know, Jane sort of acknowledges, you know, Ugh, she's, a, she's a formidable opponent. Um, and, you know, sometimes people in poorer neighborhoods had a point that the police were not particularly uh, motivated to um, prosecute crimes in their neighborhood, and they felt that they got more of the dysfunction um, and the people felt they should just live with it. Um, so I wanted to capture some of that discontent and frustration as well. Well, I think that's one of the things I've always appreciated about your series is the characters are idiosyncratic. Uh, they're not a cookie cutter. They're not one-dimensional. And that brings me sort of to Jane's uncle. And, you know, he rescued Jane when she was a toddler, fresh off the boat. She'd been abandoned by her father. And uh, his name is, uh, tell me, Tevin, Tevin uh, Prescott. Um, he's very touchy. Uh, and I think, did you, you describe, you used another word to describe him, but uh, a bit cantankerous, very stubborn, uh, mm -hmm. very, very cemented in his convictions, which for the most part are, are good, but, but so, so stuck to his conventions that he, he won't save himself. Yeah, he refuses to say where he was that on the night of the murder. Um, and it, one of the things I wanted to explore with this, I mean, he is, to our knowledge, Jane's only living relative, um, and she lived with him for 13 years. And what kind of emotional environment did she grow up with? And I think part of Jane's intellect and her sense of right and wrong come from her uncle. Um, but he's also, you know, not an easy man to live with. So I think some of her humility also <laughs> comes from, and she sort of has to work her way up through the book on to stand up to him a little bit. You know, there's a scene where she's saying, you know, why won't you let me help you? Why are you being so impossible? And what she decides is, I don't need his permission to help him. But that's, that's like, 
it's a shifting sense of agency for her. That, so I think she grows up a little bit in the course of the book. Um, and they come to a new understanding by the end of the book. And so that, that brings me to what is generally my concluding question is, uh, what's next? Because you've certainly teased us a bit. You, you st I should mention, you start each of your books with Jane in, in a more modern time as an older woman, uh, right. generally right. Me meeting her daughter. So we know she's uh, I, at least met someone that she had a child with. You know, we don't, we, right. we don't go any further than that. So we know that Jane has had a life beyond being a lady's maid. So I always want to know, and in this book, she meets a fella that may or may not be <laughs> the fella. So right. uh, what's next? Well, um, one, Charlotte, at the, by the end of this book, Charlotte, who some will remember as the younger Ben Choice sister who's been off husband hunting in Europe, has nabbed a count. Um, so I end the book with uh, the Ben Choice and the Tylers um, about to head off to Europe for a glittering wedding. Uh, which, of course, will be in 1914 <laughs> when war will break out. Um, and originally I had wanted to build a whole novel around um, the, the wedding uh, because we never really did get a big wedding in the first two books. Um, but A, uh, my editor really wanted us to stay in New York and also the challenges of Jane solving a crime in a country where she would not speak the language were, were daunting. So um, I, that may come out as a novella at some point. But um, so I take up with Jane in 1914, and they've all returned from their European tour to find that Leo Hirschfeld, the, the fella from book three, has become the success on Broadway, that he, he's a songwriter, and he has a musical coming out. And uh, Louise gets caught up in financing the show. Uh, so Jane gets caught up in the show, which is difficult because Leo has married a chorus girl. So basically it's Broadway, it's musicals, it's pop love as depicted in popular entertainment. Um, it's a little more lighthearted than the first three books, um, but I had a huge fun writing it. Well, I always look forward to Jane's next uh, adventure, and, uh, and I'm sure there's a murder somewhere along the line. Something, something must be solved. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. There's the, uh, the, the producer for the show is a very unlikable and disliked man, and uh, he does meet his end, and uh, Jane has to step in and get involved because Louise's money is at stake, even if she's mad at Leo for getting married. So. <laughs> well, thanks again, Mariah, for talking to us about uh, Death of an American Beauty. Uh, Jane is a tremendous uh, character and uh, oh, thank you. and and someone who I look forward to catching up with every year and I hope that we will get to catch up with each other 
uh, if not before, then when it's uh, published next year. And does it have a name? Uh, Death of a Showman. Death of a Showman. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much.